This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. The role of quote unquote the organizer as like representative of what is and isn't real politic, radical politics nowadays. And, you know, it's used as an authenticator of radicalism, you know, whereas I think back in the day, maybe it might have been more important. Was this person a socialist? Was this person a communist? And like, you know, party or cadre based identification of whatever organizing thing this person was a part of. Nowadays, it's just that you kind of authenticate yourself as the organizer and you're you're the real and most legitimate thing amongst the kind of professional managerial class of the political world, right? Which is like, you know, and, you know, he identifies like the campaign consultant. There's all these like new folks that have, but, you know, the organizer is like, quote unquote, the real thing while they are the, the quote unquote fake. Hello and welcome to The Hegemonicon a podcast from Convergence Magazine. This is a show about social movements and politics, strategy and ideology, the immediate present, and the rapidly onrushing future. I'm your host, William Lawrence. I spent my 20s as a member of grassroots social movements, most prominently as a co-founder and national leader of Sunrise Movement, the youth organization that put the Green New Deal on the political map. Now I'm in my early 30s trying to make sense of what we've collectively learned in this last decade plus of social movements and heightening social crises. I talk with activists and researchers on the left, exploring the guiding theme of power, what it is, how it's exercised, and how it's distributed. Last week, I was talking with Alex Hahn about the recent breakthroughs in the labor organizing field which everyone agrees are tremendously exciting, even if there remain a lot of hurdles ahead. I think it's safe to say that labor has been where the energy's at for the last few years, and community organizations, in relative terms, have been having a downspell. Now, I'm painting with a broad brush here, and please do message me with bright spots that I should know about. Uh, But membership and participation in nonprofit community organizations is down since the pandemic, uh, the same period over which labor militancy has surged. But I've been wondering why this is and trying to interpret it through the longer history of this community organizing tradition. In my writing reflection about Sunrise, I've tried to interpret these challenges by looking to our nonprofit management practices, which I think is still an important critique, but it doesn't capture the whole story. Then I read a really incredible book that came out this year. Occupation Organizer by Clement Petitjean, and I hope I'm saying that right, really sheds new light on the organizing field and its challenges. Petitjean demonstrates how the grandfather of community organizing, Saul Linsky, was committed to a professionalized and non-ideological form of organizing from the beginning. The anti-ideological elements of Alinsky have been thoroughly critiqued, if not completely driven out of the organizing field. But the professionalization of organizing has been challenged by comparatively few, even by the political radicals in the organizing field. As you'll hear in this episode, we are still seeking an alternative to the over-professionalized organizing that seems to weigh us down and so many people have experienced. I called two organizer friends, Jason Perez and Vera Parra, to talk about these issues and respond to this book. Here's our conversation. 
So let's start uh, with Jason first, then Vera. Why don't you go ahead and just introduce yourself with whatever title you care to share and best suits you for the topic of the show. Um, anything else you'd like to say about yourself? Hey, y'all, Jason. Um, <laughs> pronouns he, him. Um, currently, my political home is UWF, United Working Families Party in Chicago. Hopefully, my political home will be whatever becomes the new left roots process, whatever's going on with that. Um, and then I work as a uh, program lead and like organizing scout for Just Impact Advisors, which is the donor advised fund that works mainly on organizing to stop mass incarceration. Thanks, Jason. Go ahead, Vera. Hi, y'all. Uh, my name is Vera. I use she, her pronouns. And um, I am a, uh, been a community organizer for the last decade <laughs> um, and uh, mostly organized in the context of the immigrant rights movement. <clears throat> That's where I started um, and then organized for uh, five years with Cosecha, um, which is an immigrant rights group that comes out of the Momentum community. Um, so that's been a big part of my political home information. And I am now a grad student in sociology um, that is new. Good. So we've got a we've got a grad student. We've got a um, uh, we've got a f foundation officer, and I, I'm now a professional content creator. So I think we've got the perfect people here to talk about um, professionalization in organizing and the dreaded but seemingly inescapable nonprofit industrial complex. And we're going to be talking about these foundational concepts of organizing, like with a capital O. What do we mean when we say organizing and building organization with another capital O? What are these ideas? What work do they do? How do they shape our actions as people who are uh, fighting for a better world? And it's going to be a critical look at the practices of organizing. We're going to be asking if certain inherited habits and ideas about what organizing is might be holding us back from being more effective and uh, more radical in our impact. But I, I want to begin by saying before we get too critical that, uh, you know, we've got three organizers, I think, on this on this call. We love all the organizers out there. Uh, I've learned so much, especially from the OGs. And there's a lot that the OGs know that we're not doing anymore that we could probably stand to get back to. So it's not just about discarding things that aren't working or have been busted from the beginning. It might also be about returning to some things that have been forgotten. But we can explore all of that. And uh, I also just want to admit that I don't think I've ever really fully applied myself to the task of being a field organizer or a community organizer in the classic sense. I've always held roles that uh, put me more as a, a mobilizer, uh, a, a coalition builder, um, a strategist, um, and I, but I consider myself kind of a novice, frankly, as an organizer. And uh, but even a novice can ask some questions, and I've been part of a lot of organizations that have organizers and think about organizing. So let's ask some questions. And the two of you also have a lot more experience than me personally in the sort of uh, community organizing uh, with capital letters. Uh, 
So let's just begin then by getting grounded in our respective experiences of organizing an organization. Starting with Jason, I'm curious to hear from you about your experience in the labor and community organizing traditions, what you learned there about the ethos of being an organizer and this objective that every organizer has, which is to build leaders and build organization. Yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, I started out in community organizing, um, you know, fairly traditional around, you know, uh, trained up by Southwest East Collaborative, which was, you know, its training home or whatever was um, Center for Third Order Organizing. You know, but back when I got into organizing, usually or, you know, most organizations were more so defined by what training house they went to or what training thing that they that, that they're approximate to versus like what the name of the organization was, you know, like the, the, that's actually what mattered the most. And so um, from Southwest Youth Collaborative, um, which was a, a project on the south side of Chicago um, that did a lot of good youth organizing work and multiracial organizing work. Um, and it was in the area where, you know, where, you know, MLK was getting like, you know, it's, you know, like stuff thrown at them on the south side of Chicago, you know, it's in that area, which um, at that time was, and it still kind of is, you know, it was a, a black Latino and Arab community. Now it's, 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 it's more majority Latino. And, um, you know, they were trained up at Center for Third World Organizing. And then also, you know, I got my first professional job at like 23-ish and um, as a youth organizer, and I was on the north side and um, our organization, Multicultural Youth Project, was connected to Organization of the Northeast, which is a fairly traditional, um, I mean, kind of like one of the original um, Alinsky-based like, like training houses and um, organizations. So it, it was good training. It was a good process. Um, you know, had my first set of 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 being part of WINS and like, um, I don't ever want to say easy wins, but just like very visible, structured, you know, you just kind of knew when you knew when you won the thing and you knew when you lost the thing, you know. So um, it was, you know, the biggest thing was fighting against Renaissance 2010 and which was creating a bunch of charter schools in Chicago and getting rid of public schools. And, you know, we stopped a school from being turned into a total military school. Only like one fourth of it got turned into a military school versus you know, all of it to be turned into a military school and no longer a community um, high school. And, and most of our kids in our group went there. So, but I, I, yeah, I'll stop there. Yeah, because I know I've been going. Yeah, so that, that, that was my intro to organizing. That's great. Thank you. Let's turn to Vera. And, you know, you said that you began working as an immigrant community organizer. Um, tell me again, what were the kind of core values and practices of being an organizer as you learned it? Uh, well, I'll say that my actual first models of uh, political work um, come from my family, uh, and the, the like. Models are my my grandma, uh, and in was organized in Argentina, and then later in Germany, and my um, aunt who organized in Chile. Um, they were part of this sort of like this thing called the humanist movement, uh, which has both political party, has like a lot of alternative institution, sort of like personal transformation and stuff, but also they were like part of the, you know, protests against uh, the military dictatorships in Argentina and in Chile. Um, and then my aunt really like devoted, uh, her life to political work in various forms, uh, making money as she could through doing some union work, but also, um, helping people in rural Chile start different forms of organization. 
And so that was my model when I was growing up. Um, and I really admired them and was like looking for political work, um, from a pretty young age. Um, and then I, in college, there were sort of three things happening. One is I was watching the dream movement from a distance. I was in school in North Carolina. Um, and the trail of dreams, which was a walk from Miami to DC, uh, went through my university. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just like, uh, in all of the work that was happening and was, uh, uh, yeah, just like very moved and inspired by it and was like trying to find ways that I could do sort of like meaningful work and did some kind of like I don't found like a nonprofit in Durham that was doing police ice collaboration stuff. Uh, uh, it's sort of like on my way to, to find my way into the immigrant rights movement. Um, so that was on the one hand, on the other hand, there was a big tuition hike, uh, at UNC, like 40% because the tea party had taken over the state legislature in North Carolina. And so of the like campus, my senior year, the campus that was like a sort of innovation and social entrepreneurship oriented, uh, kind of like student activity became politicized and people started doing, uh, organizing around tuition increases, but was part of what then became some of them like moral Monday stuff in North Carolina. And then the last thing is, uh, I got a community organizing, like qua community organizing training uh, from somebody named Daniel May, uh, who uh, trained a lot of uh, the like anti-occupation Jewish left uh, people um, who was IAF trained. Um, and I learned, I was like, oh, this is a job. This is a job I could do <laughs> when I graduate. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, that was sort of the confluence of things. And then when I left college, I basically was kind of like piecing together organizing jobs, but was also part of the, like found my way into uh, what was then the New Jersey Dream Act Coalition, which was like the New Jersey chapter of United We Dream um, in a time when the dream movement was I would say on the decline, but very much alive and active, or it was sort of like the peak as they won DACA and then people were already starting to leave. Um, and so we were, we actually, there was sort of a cadre of us that formed, <clears throat> some of whom were volunteers who had been hired by different organizations, United We Dream, PICO, which is where I ended up working, which then And we formed a kind of group that, like, stood, I don't know if above or outside of whatever respective jobs we had. And so it always felt like this tension between my paid organizing job and the movement work that I was Mm -hmm. doing um, as part of the immigrant rights movement. And I, like, felt that tension very deeply and palpably. Um, And part of what happened... I think for different reasons that we can talk about, um, there was uh, something that felt really different about the kind of movement work that we were doing. And also as the immigrant rights movement started losing its way, I was like, okay, I'm going to buckle down on being the best PICO organizer I can be uh, and build this organization here in New Jersey. Um, So 
yeah, that's that's my little trajectory before. Tell me just a little bit about the, 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 the specific work that you were doing and trained to do um, at Pico. Like what would it mean to be the best Pico organizer that one could be? Yeah. Well, I'll say that um, uh, being a good Pico organizer meant uh, having a lot of one-to-ones. Um, I did have some sort of style, but I, I had some, I had like my, uh, my boss, my supervisor would run with me, um, meaning would like come with me to my one-on-ones and give me feedback on them. Um, I'd have to report on how many one-to-ones I'd had a week. Um, was hard because I was starting something brand new um, and very, very green. So I always felt like I was doing a bad job. Um, but it was like, how does one even find enough people to talk to? <laughs> I was building uh, teams in congregations. Um, and so I would have to work with the clergy in the congregation. Um, and I was working mostly in Catholic uh, immigrant congregations. Um, so organizing mostly at, like in older immigrant worker constituency. Um, and which is different than the movement work we were doing was much more uh, the, the like dream movement stuff we were doing. We were like working on an in-state tuition campaign, uh, which was mostly organizing with young people. So I was also supporting some teams of uh, undocumented youth in like community college, uh, Essex County Community College. So I was like doing work supporting that and part of this like, uh, you know, youth organizing group. Uh, and then the Pico work was, yeah, building teams of uh, mostly immigrant workers in Catholic congregations in uh, in Newark and then other parts of the state. Right on. So Jason made this was clear to state that in his early training as an organizer, it was it was not like what people would now call managerialism. It was more like a coaching relationship where it was very high touch and you're focused on these daily check-ins in the form of doing all these different tasks of one-on-ones and leader identification and so forth. Where would you put your experience in Pico kind of like on that spectrum? Was it similar to what Jason's describing or was it nearer to the kind of managerialism that people like to complain about today? Um, I think it was closer to what Jason was describing, but lower touch than I wanted. Like I always wanted more, uh, mentorship and support and training than, um, than my director was able to give me. And I think some of that has to do with me where it was hard for me actually to like, I think some, one of the things that organizing taught me is like how to do things in a self-directed way and how to move from, a to D and have to figure out points B, C, and whatever the order of the letters are. Like you said, maybe the standards had relaxed a little bit. And so then there was a little less of a, the, the, the hard and fast model had been discarded a little bit, but there was not necessarily replaced with something equally rigorous. I've definitely seen that. And, and to make it clear, my, my, mine was just in the, that's like the first six months to one year phase. You know, after that, it's, it's much more of a weekly or maybe, if it's a intense event, then twice a week. But then you have your weekly work plan, which was like your Bible for the week, kind of. Yeah. So I want to take this then into a conversation about managerialism and the sort of trappings of, of, of bureaucratization, institutionalization. People have all kinds of different ways of describing this. NGOification, the MPIC. And, you know, this is the phenomenon of organizing efforts or groups that 
the participants really believe to be and want to be radical. I think that's important about it. It's like the people are part of it, want it to be radical, but then it ends up taking on a shape that turns out to be bureaucratic and top-heavy and kind of lumbering and risk-averse in order to fulfill the requirements of becoming like a stable and legitimate organization. And sometimes this is like built in from the beginning. Other times it evolves over time from a, a, a scrappier or less structured kind of group. So I want to ask, like, when did you become aware of this pattern? Was it in the organizations you're describing and talking about now? Was it in some of your other organizing experience? When did you start to see this pattern and be talking about it with your comrades? Let's start with Vera and then move back to Jason. Yeah. Um, well, I haven't talked yet about Gosecha, um, so I, I'll do that. But um, I think first I'll say that I I don't know if I would actually characterize it as like if the main – I think there is a big problem with management and the way in which um, – management in organizations is really different than the kind of relationship you need to build with volunteers. And so if your main model for leadership development is a management relationship, then it's going to be really hard for you to engage with volunteers who uh, you can't have a management relationship with them because they're not, you're not paying them. Um, and so I think that's one particular challenge and question. Um, I and then I think the the question of professionalization uh, and sort of the like career uh, questions that come in is another one. And I think the third thing is money, um, which is an, pre presents a whole other host of tensions. Um, I think it's helpful to tease those things apart because when we talk about the nonprofit industrial complex, we're sort of, you know, it can be helpful to be like, this is a type because it is a type. And I think if we're actually thinking about how to solve it, it's like, what are the different tensions here that we need to address and what are different ways to address them? Um, I think I, so, so management was not really the tension I experienced. What I experienced was like a volunteer kind of, what, what it feels like when the work is volunteer um, and what it feels like when you're a paid staff, which sort of puts you in a set, in a outside role. Um, and I think it was, I, I felt it really palpably because I was doing this work as part of the immigrant rights movement with my like friends, comrades, uh, this cadre of people. And many of us had paid organizing roles, but then we were also doing all of this other work, uh, that felt meaningful. Um, and it sort of like felt like we were kind of like part of history in a different way. Um, and I think some of the things, some of the things that I felt palpably at the time, there were definitely some like things that I kind of just like had to do for fundraising purposes in Pico where we like got a bunch of ACA money. And so I had to do some like ACA outreach and I really bristled at having to do that. Uh, Jason's laughing at me. Um, <laughs> so, so that's just like pretty, you know, like pretty straightforward, uh, funding shaping what, what you're doing. And, but I also think there was a way in which, I mean, I think in particular, I was organizing in a new place. So there weren't already like established leaders who were 
you know, no, there weren't leaders who interviewed me for the job, for instance, um, which, which, uh, which usually happens in a more like established, um, community organization. And I felt really lonely. Um, I think, uh, there's a, a way in which I didn't totally feel like a part of the community that I was organizing where, uh, in the movement work that I was doing, that was volunteer, you know, we would like have a six hour long planning, strategizing meeting, and then I'll go drinking together. Um, it felt very, very different. And, um, yeah. And, and there were also quite, people had the community that I was organizing had suspicion about like, why was I getting paid? What is this organization? Where's the funding coming from? I think a big part of that is that there's not a paid professional organizing tradition in Latin America in the same way. There are people who are, when I called my grandma to like tell her what I was up to, she was like, you're getting paid by the church (laughs) to organize. (laughs) Does that make sense? And, and so there's a way in which when I started organizing with Cosecha, that was way more legible uh, to my family in Latin America. They were like, oh, estás militando is the word for it. And uh, you're a militant, but it doesn't come with the same kind of connotation uh, as, as it does here. Yeah. So, and I, so I think it was like I built trust through my relationships with people. Uh, in spite of the, organi- the the fact of the institution that we were building, um, as opposed to people having a like very profound sense of uh, ownership um, over the organization itself, um, and I think that that had to do with like some profound questions that people had about um, an organization, an institution, money, infrastructure um, that they weren't part of shaping and didn't have ownership over themselves. Um, and I felt that tension in a, in a deep way. I think a lot of organizers would really relate with that, what you described of building amazing relationships in spite of the broader organization that you're working to build. <laughs> and that's almost the least compelling thing of everything you're doing. The issues are compelling. The community is compelling. Being there, sitting with an actual person and learning to fight together, that's compelling. But then all of this apparatus, it, no one is quite sure whether it makes sense or w- whether we can trust it. Jason, let's let's turn to you and ask a, a you know Vera deconstructed my my, my question um, I think helpfully so um, you could take it in whichever direction you want or the you know dawning realization of tensions um, between the organizing you were practicing and uh, you know the institution you're working for and so forth yeah um and I guess to continue the deconstruction thing um, like you know and and, and I mean, I look at those as two different kind of issues, I guess, in some ways. Like in um, in SEIU, um, there was always that tension of what I wanted to do as like the staff organizer versus what the elected officers wanted to do versus what the members wanted to do, which was and you know that that. Um, but I, I don't think that was really kind of like a problem of like managerialism or neoliberal managerialism. I think actually the closest it came, at least within labor, was when SEIU started having a a rule that 20% of, you know, your funds had to go towards organizing and paid staff organizing and like and, and projects in relation to, to organizing. And um, 
there was one way they were doing it, which is the opening up training houses. You had the wave training, you know, you had like a certain amount of trainings to do. But then there was also then the, and then and with that comes the coaching approach. And then there was kind of like the, the managerial repro- approach, which usually, you know, you'd bring out folks from international, not from the local. And, you know, it was, it was kind of like this approach of our, our issues around strategic differences and approaches were going to be, if you just organize better, all those issues would resolve themselves. It was very much that thing, and that, and you know, you know, kind of um, Mac Levy at times has that tendency too. That like soon the political and strategic differences will melt away as you as we build better organizers and better issues that are cut in a better way. And no, those issues still, you know, like <laughs> those issues and those tensions. Because yeah, it's good to have twenty percent organizing staff on internal and external organizing, but then there's all, all, all sorts of actual issues around grievances. You know, there, there, there's real issues that have to get figured out that organizing is not going to take care of in, in, in the kind of traditional way. Um, so so it's like managerialism to, and, and using organizing, even good organizing to overcome like those political issues. And then, but it didn't really become like, I I mean, I I didn't even notice it. I didn't even kind of realize it until I think, A, I was part of like co-founding an organization and being a lead in an organization. And it it, kind of became the thing, at least for me, that I noticed in regards to, you know, BYP 100, Movement for Black Lives, and then dealing with internal conflicts and dealing with organization development as you know, you start like sending folks to the management center. And the issue is, is that you're just not doing like task management, right? You're not doing project management, right? You're not doing it right with your staff and you're not doing it right with your members. And if you kind of just get these things right, then all these other issues will fit. And it's just like, no, I mean, you know, the, 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 the issue is, is should we do electoral politics or not? No amount of so you're saying that it's political or... disagreements. It's political disagreements <laughs> yeah. that are being kind of papered over under the ideology of good organizing and good management, as if that would yeah. make yeah. anybody yeah. Or, 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 or that if you just had this kind of good kind of managerial structure versus like more of a kind of you know a, a democracy structure, like or a dem- democratic decision making structure, that that then you could that you could come to a decision point where everyone would have buy in. People would. You know, and then and then that's where, at least for me, I think almost kind of like the misuse of relationship building, where it's like if you just have a strong enough relationship with these people, when the moment of conflict happens, then it won't blow up in this way or whatever. Which I, I think there's some truth to it, but it, you know, it, it almost sold itself as that this conflict won't escalate to these to, to the level it does, and it's like, well, no, these conflicts still. I mean, if you read anything about you know SNCC, I mean, these people had deep relationships with each other. And the, and the conflict scaled in way, you know, especially towards the end, scaled in in in, fair, in phenomenally intense ways, you know. So, and, and and that's where I saw it at, and that's where, and I was definitely on the team of, oh, if we just get, if we just get the right campaign, if we just get the right issue, if we just get the right thing, all these other issues would be taken care of. And in in my estimation, it's um that yeah that that wasn't the uh, you know that, that that wasn't the case and um. So yeah, that's how I see it coming up. I have no solution for it outside of maybe some like democracy, like you know, representative builds in representative form of democracy mechanisms. Um, but then you're left in you know DSA land um, or or labor land, right? Like in terms of the, the conflicts that happen. So, yeah. Vera, you've mentioned 
Cosecha. And the, uh, so why don't you go ahead and tell us more about the uh, efforts that Cosecha made to practice an alternative to the kind of staff organizer model. Okay, so Cosecha formed in 2014, 2015. People started thinking about it, uh, launched in 2016, was part of a group of uh, organizations that were trained by the Momentum Training Institute, um, and then launched organizations, including, if not now, in Sunrise and other dissenters and others. Yeah, so uh, Cosecha was, we had a volunteer staff model. Um, so we... Uh, that was modeled off of uh, SNCC and the United Farm Workers as examples. Um, so we lived in movement houses and uh, something called the VON, the Volunteer Organizing Network. Um, at the max, we had, I think, 30 people um, who were part of this and uh, basically were had like a stipend of $200 a month. Um, and that was for, you know, beers uh, and everything else, you know, your food and housing, uh, and travel was covered, uh, by our own budget. And so obviously I'll just want to jump in and say, people listening to this will immediately say, if your framework is thinking that these are workers, then you're like, Oh my God, $200 a month. These are exploited workers. But that was not at all the frame through which you were seeing yourselves. Right. So can you like explain that, that core distinction? Well, the frame that we, so we'd all come from, uh, at least the like first wave of us had come from experiences of organizing in the dream movement or organizing as uh, nonprofit professional organizers. And I think in the dream movement, there was, um, you know, at, at its height, the dream movement had thousands of people who were working uh other jobs and then we're spending the vast majority of their time um, organizing um, and we're not paid. And um, part of the like institutionalization of the dream movement meant that there were a small number of people who were hired to be staff people while others uh, were not. Um, and so I think it, from that context, it felt, uh, you know, it was like we, we want to have be able to support a large number of volunteers Instead of just having a small number of professional paid staff, we want to be able to support a large number of volunteers um, to be a part of organizing. And so it's like the idea is instead of concentrating it, we're distributing it. And uh, yeah, and then those of us who had been professional organizers, I think, had the experience and the feeling of that, the tension I was describing of feeling, um, uh, yeah, both the, the way in which it separates you or, or removes you from your community. Yeah. So I, and I, I, the other thing I'll say, I think is that um, like a lot of us had experiences uh, or had in our minds an organizing model outside of the U S uh, in Latin America, where this is a more uh, you know, where the expectation is not that you'll get paid to do political work. Um, and so that uh, I think profoundly shaped our thinking and, you know, it's movement houses is one solution, which has, we can talk about the costs and benefits of that. Uh, but, you know, there are many different form, like formate. It's like other people in the family make money to support the person who's doing the like important collective community work. Um, and yeah, they're there. Or if you just like have more free time um, 
and work is less central to your life, then that enables you to be able to do a lot of volunteer, a lot of volunteer organizing and political work. And so there are different, there are different models, I think, that many of us were coming in with. And then maybe the last thing I'll say is that I think there was something that felt specific to the uh, constituency that we were organizing of and like older immigrant worker constituency, most of whom had not grown up in the United States and didn't have the professional organizing model where it felt like this is actually something that we need to do in order to really be able to build trust with our people and in order to really be able to ensure that uh, people feel a deeper sense of ownership over this organization so that it's like we're all raising the resources we had a principle that everything we need is in our community. And I think there, that that part actually really bore out. So organizing in Cosecha compared to any other kind of organizing I was doing, people immediately felt a very deep sense of ownership over the organization. Immediately would be like, okay, we have to do fundraisers, sell shirts, uh, make tacos. Just like very immediately we'd do a training in a town and people would start thinking about how to raise money for the organization. And I think it gave people, the leaders that we were working with, a much deeper kind of commitment. And then I, I, there's a relationship between ownership people feel and the commitment they have. And I think that part was uh, really borne out by our experience. The flip side is we traded in one set of problems for another. Um, and I think it's, it's hard for me to talk about this because of the way that we organized in Cosecha was so collective uh, that every time I've talked, I haven't processed this really with other people in Cosecha. So every time I start talking about it, I kind of like trip up. I froze in a momentum training talking about this. Um, And I think it's because in some ways I'm like, I don't actually feel like I have permission from the group to tell this story. So with that caveat, um, I'll say that, yeah, I, my, my personal sense, and I think, Different, people have different reads and different stories um, about this. But um, so, so Cosecha, the leaders are still organizing, um, the, the volunteer leaders that we developed. And they're sort of figuring out how the na- elected national board um, is figuring out how to, uh, how they want to do, uh, like is trying figuring out hiring uh, organizers potentially um, and has been sort of distributing stipends. But the VON, the Volunteer Organizing Network, uh, no longer exists. Um, and with that came the loss of a lot of resources and skills and expertise um, that, uh, that that really sustained Cosecha for a long time. Um, and I would say what happened, the, the short, my, my own personal sense of, of what happened is that I think when we had, when we were thinking of our organization as a short-term thing, uh, that like existed to fulfill a particular purpose and then dissolve, it actually made sense to have this model. But as it became, as the terrain shifted on immigration, as it became clear that it was a much, much, much longer fight and that actually immigrant need leaders, immigrant worker leaders need a national organization uh, for a long haul to represent that set of interests, um, I, uh, yeah, I think it, we, we actually didn't know how to, um, we couldn't shift our, our staffing structure, um, in order to build something that was more sustainable. Um, and so as the the strategy shifted, the structure needed to change. And I think for a number of different reasons that have a lot to do with leadership and governance, it was really hard to make 
uh, deep changes that felt like they uh, were actually like central and core to the organization or what we call momentum, the DNA. Um, Thanks for sharing all that. I mean, it was a really powerful experiment in something very bold and alternative to the way that this is normally done. I mean, 30, you know, functionally full-time volunteer organizers in the network. It was awesome. I mean, I saw it. I was very inspired by it at the time. And, and you all were on fire, you know, you militantes, as you said, like it, it, that spirit was really there. And I'm not at all surprised that you were uh, effective at connecting with people. Um, on that foundation because it was like there was no wizard behind the curtain. There was no uh, uh, there was no confusing organization that's impossible to explain with funders that nobody really knows or trusts. It was like you all putting it on the line, you know, and and, and so people uh, people did rally to want to be a part of that. So I appreciate your reflections on it. And when we messed things up, which of course we did, um, and, and you know, I think there's a way in which we had sort of like a self-effacing, uh, sacrificial, like we are but humble servants uh, sort of attitude. But the, the reality was that we were the leaders of a national organization. Um, and until we developed a democratic structure, there was actually no, there, there was no governance structure, nothing to legitimize us, uh, which ended up creating a lot of tensions and challenges internally within the Vaughn. But our, the base of volunteer, uh, the yeah base of volunteer leaders who were not uh, (laughs) stipended and living in movement houses um, were uh, very generous with us uh, as we really messed things up, (laughs) you know? And I think that in some ways that has to do with, in some ways it has to do, I think with like, age and uh, maturity of the people that we were organizing um, and uh, just like less of the kind of like uh, individualism uh, in American individualism that I think ends up ripping a lot of movement organizations apart. Um, but I also think, you know, they like, they were worried about us. Um, so we would mess things up and they'd be like, why are you isolating yourselves? How can we help? So we're going to put another bookmark on the governance question because both of you raised that i think it's going to have to be a whole nother episode on governance and we're going to have to keep this one focused on organizing hi this is Caden, the publisher of convergence magazine there are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements but if you're enjoying this show i hope you'll consider subscribing to convergence on patreon we're a small independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work you can join us at patreon.com slash convergence mag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system, one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks both already for just sharing so much of your your own experience. And I know that these things are are not easy. There's a lot of, you know, stumbles and failures and reflections along the way. I want to turn for this next beat to this book that Jason turned me on to, um, Occupation Organizer by Clement Petitjean, which is a critical history of community organizing in the United States. And in thinking these things through, this book just really shed a lot of light for me on uh, 
why some of these challenges with institutionalization and professionalization keep coming back and, and rearing their head, even when it seems like we try to run away from them like you were doing with Cosecha. So if you indulge me for the listeners in, in briefly summarizing the core argument of this book, it's something like this. Uh, Petajan lays out how Saul Alinsky, the grandfather of the organizing field as we know it today, from the beginning conceptualized organizing as a full-time, skilled, professional job, which could become a career, and built professionalized organizations of the kind we still know today in order to house organizers. And I thought there was an amazing quote in this book from 1972 um, when Alinsky told Playboy magazine, quote, to most people, I'm a professional radical. To my mother, the important thing is I'm a professional. To mama, it was all anticlimactic after I got that college degree. So, you know, I think a lot of organizers probably would also uh, see themselves in that a little bit. Uh, it's like, do you, do you understand what we're doing? No. Do you understand that I'm like uh, well enough compensated and there are people who respect me and like I might like get an award at the end of the year if I do a good job? Like, yes. So these trappings of professionalization are there. Uh, and then the author also points out that the organizer in this model has always by definition been one step removed from the people they're organizing and the leaders they're cultivating. And he says, basically, the organizer, the identity of the organizer depends on the identity of the community leader and uh, vice versa, but the two will never be one. Uh, and the organizer is basically supposed to be this self-effacing, humble servant whose job is to you know, cultivate the civic uh, sense and consciousness of the community and their own skills, their own agency, so that then the community uh, and the community leaders can speak for themselves. And then he goes on to say that the ideology of community organizing in the Alinsky lineage is a form of, quote, militant liberalism. Continuing, quote, a political creme brulee with a crisp layer of conflict tactics and anti-establishment rhetoric on top of a mellow cream of commitment to class harmony, compromise, and liberal pluralism. He writes, significantly, the professional dimension of the work was baked into the cream from the very beginning. So here's this anti-ideologism that Jason is talking about, where actually major political debates, which may be falling along bounds of, you know, socialism versus liberalism or what brand of progressivism we want to pursue, that all basically gets cast aside. And we say, if we just did good organizing, we wouldn't have these problems. But at the end of the day, like, it's liberalism. It's liberal democracy and people kind of working to have their voices and interests reflected through our liberal democratic system. So I think this is a fair critique that he's making, that this is at its root like liberalism, unless there's something else, some ideology attached to it that is explicitly, you know, progressive or socialist. So then he goes on to identify clearly that there is another historic lineage of community organizing besides that of Alinsky. And this is the humble quote-unquote, spade work practiced and popularized by Ella Baker and the SNCC Freedom Movement organizers, and uh, then continuing from there. But he sort of says that this tradition then blended with the Alinsky model in the 1970s uh, as a result of 60s radicals basically seeking to make permanent careers for themselves while doing good. So here's a quote on that topic. Quote, During Alinsky's career and after his death in 1972, a whole range of actors involved in the burgeoning community organizing movement 
criticized Alinsky's definition of the organizer's role as an outside, detached, and manipulating expert. The contours of the roles were challenged by white new leftists, organizers of color, and women who rightly felt that Alinsky and the IAF completely overlooked central issues of race, gender, and ideology. However, such criticism never called into question the existence of the organizer's role itself and its centrality. That coming together happened as former 60s radicals who are trying to find ways to sustain protest activity and engagement outside of movement waves found a home in the various groups that came out of the IAF tradition. Again, despite, endur- despite enduring divergences over the meaning of the organizer's role and position, a common agreement consolidated over the need to pursue professionalization as the best strategy to bring about effective social change. In order to legitimize its place within the political ecosystem, community organizers as a group turned to philanthropic foundations, which led to a continuing structural subordination to philanthropy. And then he kind of lays out uh, how it was the networks founded by these professionalizing radicals in the 70s and the 80s, including PICO, including um, National People's Action, including ACORN, Gamaliel, these are still the, the the networks that are defining and training us as organizers kind of to this day. So that's the gloss of the book. I, I think this really hit the mark for me, and it kind of made me got me thinking about the way that organizers, I think, consider organizing to be inherently a radical practice, or we want to believe that. But this book really shows how that is not necessarily the case. It looks starts to look a lot more like an ordinary, if somewhat marginal, part of the liberal democratic process through which there are myriad interest groups each jockeying for a better deal. And the organizer is the person which you know embeds in a given community and helps that community to jockey for a, a slightly better deal within the parameters of the system as we have. And I wonder if this history also helps explain why it seems so difficult to practice quote-unquote good organizing without sliding into the professional dynamics of top-down leadership, staff member divides, and the pattern, which I also heard from you all, of a few long-tenured organizers relying on the frequent churn and burnout of more junior organizers, which was also there from the beginning with Alinsky. I think Pettijan is kind of suggesting that all of this, despite our wishes to leave behind such patterns, is really deeply built into our mental models of organizing itself. And so if you try to create the conditions to practice good organizing on a durable basis, like you ultimately realized you needed to do in Cosecha and like we decided we needed to do in Sunrise at a certain point, and you're using the tools lying around among fellow organizers, you're going to end up with something that looks like a nonprofit, top-down Uh, organization. And again, I think at Sunrise, we saw the push to do good, durable organizing and the adoption of somewhat bureaucratic management techniques really came hand in hand. They weren't incompatible at all. So Jason, you turned me on to this book. What parts of it stood out for you? Where did you see echoes of your own organizing experience? And um, where, if anywhere, you would push back? Really just take it wherever you want. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm partisan to the book. I, I love the book. I mean, even though there's 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 definitely big parts that I I don't know if big parts, but par- parts that I disagree with on. But um, I think all the parts I disagree with on, I think, are well argued. Like, there's very valid evidence and and well argued for, 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 for what the author is trying to get at. The biggest thing that stood out to me was just 
the role of quote unquote the organizer as like representative of what is and isn't real politic, radical politics nowadays. And, you know, it's used as an authenticator of radicalism, you know, whereas I think back in the day, maybe it might have been more important. Was this person a socialist? Was this person a communist? And like, you know, party or cadre based identification of whatever organizing thing this person was a part of. Nowadays, it's just that you kind of authenticate yourself as the organizer and you're you're the real and most legitimate thing amongst the kind of professional managerial class of the political world. Right. Which is like, you know, and, you know, he identifies like the campaign consultant. Uh, you know, there's all these there's all these like new folks that have. But, you know, the organizer is like, quote unquote, the real thing while they are the, the quote unquote fake thing, even though we're all. And, you know, like, we're better than the policy person. We're better than the, the by better, I mean, more radical, right? Like, we're, we're all you know, professional activists, but the organizers claim the mantle of being the most with the people. And yeah, and the authentic. And yeah, 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 yeah. So the, that that part, I, I mean, I 100% agree, agreed with. I think the other part in terms of a lot of the basic premises of at least how we get indoctrinated in organizing, which is very different from, like, let's say what, communist party used to teach or even things like march and washington committee used to teach about power you know there's like that there's that myth that like fdr said go make me do that and that just didn't happen right but there's very much this organizing idea that you know you make the powers to be do the thing that you want to do and then you're actually like enlivening and making democracy And, and barack obama really ran with this at like you know absurd levels which then always you know, ignores and gets rid of the the issue of no. You know, we don't want to always keep on. And, and this is something I actually got from from labor, but but in the community social movement world, you know, we don't always want to keep on fighting these fights. You know, we we want to institutionalize these fights so that we don't have to keep on fighting the fight. And it kind of happens on its own, and we can go on to the next stage of whatever the struggle is. But community organizing, I would even say social movement organizing, really valorizes the constant kind of bottom-up asymmetrical um conflict and that 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 becomes like the sign of our virtuousness righteousness like the right and and even like the analytical analytical rightness of our politics and then things that are whether they're structural reforms reformist reforms in especially when they're attached to institutionalization all of a sudden becomes the thing that's compromising us co-opting us you know the thing that never co-ops us supposedly is the fact that we have to work like 60 or 70 hours in a week just to get a certain amount of people there just to get like people to care about one issue like you know to me that 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 was always much more critical about co i don't even know if it was co-option it was like incapacitation or whatever it was getting in the way of us building something versus uh you know uh, us winning a thing or our things be, being in, you know incorporated this day and other thing so i just feel like th- that that point that he made um where like community organizing social movement start becoming the nonprofit thing that's in place of actual democratic government, the democratic economy, things like that. And then, I mean, at least for me, I, it kind of just, I think I very much always justified my, my work and my career and my, my life as, well, at least I'm part of the state work tradition, you know, <laughs> like that, that's where I'm part of, you know, that's what I do. And, um, you know, he kind of blew, I mean, very gently, you know, um, but, you know, he kind of blew that out of the, out of the water. And I mean, he, he made a very, that, 
I mean, that's hegemony 101. Just because you feel like it's not a part of it. No, we, we live in the, we, and, and actually now that I'm working this job, I think he, he kind of, he, he does overstate it to a little bit, but for the most part, we are up until maybe before Occupy, maybe, you know, we lived in the, in the funding world and foundation world and in the organizing world that Saul Linsky built, even if we had various things. Um, I think the thing that he wiped away was the world of Padre and Cadre organizing and, you know, labor organizing of the way that McLevy described, you know, and that, um, and, and that, that part is, is, is right, you know. Vera, how about you? You haven't read the book, uh, uh, so you have fresh perspective here. Uh, and uh, t- tell us that we're full of shit if, uh, if you want to. How, how does this sound to you and uh, any echoes from your own experience? I'm going against all my grad school instincts of like staying close to the text, you know, <laughs> talking about something I haven't read. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to read this book. Um, as you were talking, Jason, I'm a little nervous to read the book because I think I have, uh, I, I, there's, a, there's a deep way in which I think organizer is an important part of my, my identity and sense of self. Um, Get ready so to lose it. No, I'm joking. It'd be fun to have Um, but I think here's one just like immediate reaction that I'm having to this is, um, I think, uh, useful to understand the tradition that we come from and sort of like denaturalize some of the things that have been woven together. Um, and I think, uh, I I guess my, my question would be, can we like unbraid them? Uh, are there elements of the tradition that we would want to rescue um, as we pull certain pieces of it out? And I think there's a few things I want to say in defense of the American tradition of community organizing. Um, and maybe this is maybe this is what he refers to as the spade work tradition. But I think there are, and and the reason that I think it's important to do this is some of what you were saying earlier, Will, about like. Uh, rescuing or returning to older traditions and not losing them. Um, but I think we're in like a really pro we're in a different moment than Alinsky was. Uh, we're in a moment where there is an enormous amount of philanthropy, um, that goes to a lot of bullshit work. And there are a lot of people who are hired to be community organizers who are politicized, um, in some way or other through like, you know, cycles of mass protests that happened, uh, that happened over the last 10 years um, that are hired into organizations that have no tradition of community organizing and get absolutely no training. And so are claiming the mantle without actually getting any of the training that I think is useful. And I think a lot of the, to me, one of the biggest problems of philanthropy is that you can get money without having to build Oh my god. As long as you Man, can organize the funders, you may never have to actually organize a base. A single person. Yeah. And it also means that like I think the importance of comms and social media is like that will get you funding in a way that filling up a room won't necessarily, or you only need to fill up a room one time to be able to put it on your brochures. Uh, to convince funders that you're able to fill up a room, but it's completely disconnected from building mass organizations. So there's just, 
I think, an enormous crisis of mass organization in this country where we don't have the organizational vehicles that we need. And so for that reason, I think it's actually important to, I think there are some things in the community organizing tradition and in the particular role of the organizer that I think are useful uh, clues uh, or practices maybe that, uh, that I think are worth rescuing, even as we critique the professionalization um, and lack of ideology of Linsky and, and all of that. Um, so I think, I think one of them is that actually incentives for organizers are not, are lined up in, in the traditional community organizing model. I think this is true for labor organizers. Like you, you're measured based off of whether you can turn people out. Uh, and whether you're building relationships with people. And I think that that actually, so your own personal incentives for your own advancement in the organization actually in some ways line up with building people power. I think that matters. I think also financially, like the traditional model of community organizing actually doesn't rely on foundation funding in the same way. It relies on church donations. And so that means that you need to get your clergy leaders, community leaders bought in on uh, on the organization that you're trying to build um, in a similar way that with union organizing, it's member dues. And so if you don't have members, the organization does actually fall apart. And I think that that is a, like qualitatively important difference. Because we shouldn't want organizations without we members we, going around confusing the field. Yes. The, the, yeah. That's, yes. Yeah. I think it's, it's critical that the life of your organization depend on whether you have members and materially is the most important way you can do that so that you're so that the things you have to do for your organization to survive are not actually like fundamentally disconnected from the, the things you need to do to build people power. So I think that's one thing that's worth rescuing. And I think another thing is actually this, the organizers are in a kind of, I think being the like, role that you play, even though in the like, uh, Linsky tradition, it's sort of like you pretend that you're not the leader in the background, but I actually do organizers play, I think an important intermediary role between that, particularly if you are representing a particular turf or a particular constituency, that's part of the whole, you need to build relationships and in some ways represent and articulate the, the interests of the people that you are representing and then negotiate those with other groups of people. Um, and, and that's where strategy comes from. That is, that is actually, and I think that intermediary role is, Gramsci talks about this, is like really, really, really critical. So I think you have right now a lot of organizations that have large lists and then a few professional staff people at the top and nothing in the middle. And I think that that creates big governance crises and, uh, and like, I think it's, I, I think it's a major problem. And it also means that people aren't getting the kind of like support and development that they need. So I think that, and organizers often actually, I think staff organizers often feel some kind of tension where on the one hand, there's what their members want. And on the other hand, there's the demands at the top of the organization. And I actually think that that intermediary level is really important. And it's just like, could that not be a professional role? You know, could that be uh, could that be a community leadership role? Um, and I think... 
could it be something that feels like organic and vital rather than feeling like you're a cog in a machine getting torn between competing interests and like not really working for the people more like having to, you know, twist their arms into doing things Uh, somehow, sometimes how it ends up. Right. Or could it, it could it be an elected role for instance, um, or an appointed role or, you know, however you would want to do that. Um, I think the other two things that are important about the community this organizing is great. tradition. Yeah, you're here to save organizing, is, and I really appreciate it. Okay. It's, and that it, these are things that are different than the conventional yeah. nonprofit. Um, I think is about, I think actually organizers have less specialization. Um, like if you are a turf organizer, so if you're responsible for organizing people in a particular region, you're writing the press release or teaching people to write the press release. You're doing the other, you know, you're like trying to get some money. You're, you actually have to do all of the different things, um, and train and develop others to do all of the different things, which is really different than being organized by function and by specialty, which like a traditional nonprofit structure is like the strategy team is the comms person and the political person and the organizer as one person. And I think actually that that specialization is a real problem. Um, because it's all kind of integral to a, and, a, a, a understanding of power. Like you got to have the comms, you got to have the organizing, you got to have the policy. If you're only looking at one of those pieces, I mean, yeah, I can think about so many people I've known in like nonprofits who are specialists in one of those areas. And my rap on them is like, you don't actually understand campaigning and you don't understand power because you're in loan, you're in love with your own expertise in your own specialty field. So I haven't really thought about that, but I, I love that yeah. point. Okay. And then what's number four? Number four is that uh, organizing involves skills that you can teach. That's just the leadership development, I think. Even if we take all of the professionalism yeah. out of it, it's no longer a paid staff job, whatever. But I do think there are skills that can be taught. And how is that piece contrary to the way that uh, it, it's, it is practiced sometimes in, in the nonprofits? I thought uh, you had said that that was intention. Uh, well, people aren't, <laughs> yeah, yeah, people aren't teaching anything. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad I don't feel alone because I, I I'm, I'm no, I'm worried, especially now on this other side of the, I'm worried like I'm becoming this old curmudgeon that's like people don't learn. But hearing you say it, I feel which maybe it's just just an echo chamber and we'll just organize um, an echo chamber. But I thank you for saying it because I, good lord, my god. Yeah, but but we should, but but why this not to discount the like we should definitely go go deep in on the critiques because I think those are huge problems and. And, and to fairness to him, like to the author, he's not saying like abolish the paid organizer, abolish the community organizer. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a critical history. So it's just saying like, these are some of the issues and tensions and th- these tensions get taught because he actually goes to great lengths to kind of say, you know, my issue isn't the nonprofit industrial complex to critique or philanthropy critique in and of itself. You know, like people have done that or even kind of like the thetoscopo kind of managerialification of, you know, his, you know, my critique, what I'm worried about is the how the professional, unless like that professionalization has happened, but how the professionalization of the organizer has happened, which I, th- that that's the part. I mean, I think that's why I think I was a little bit more open to it. Um, but, but he, I mean, he makes very, very clear that, 
you know, without this kind of professionalization, you know, you wouldn't have the amount of people of color coming into organize that the beginnings of organizing as a profession was very was was very white, very male, very much the kind of people who could sacrifice, you know, hours of time, you know, like who could who could sacrifice and then get low pay. And that what the professionalization has done is allowed folks who normally wouldn't be able to sacrifice that much volunteer time to be a full-time organizer to then go and do that. And then that's why you've seen the, the rise in, 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 in that. And then I think the other, the only other piece too, and I, I forgot to say is that, and I think he kind of misses this point or maybe he doesn't, but you know, especially now on this end of the job, it's just even the Alinsky style of foundation stuff is that's actually a tiny sector of philanthropy funding of organizing, right? And that part needs to get teased out because then there is a bunch of, and, and he kind of has a problem with like all these conditions that Alinsky stuff puts on or even like Center for Thrilled Organizing at those kind of schools they put on in terms of how you get funded. And I'm actually more on the side of, yeah, I think we need more of that. We need to get back to that. Like that, 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 that Alinsky, that Delgado, that, you know, Rathke, like, you know, all these, like, they were on to something that, like, if you don't put all these conditions around training houses, around all these things or whatever, this thing can just veer off into, you know, places that you're just, you're just not, you know, and I, and I think that that's what we're living with now, that in response to how, I don't know if the right word is dictatorial or methodological in terms of how this is how it gets done, that then everyone was just like, Anything goes organizing, we'll fund it, and then we're in that world now. And and at least for me personally, I don't, you know, I don't like that world. So yeah. Uh, what are the what are the directions that we need to be moving in to organize in a way that is? Um, I think it's fair to say we need something which is qualitatively different from the organizing we're doing now. We need to rescue some of these old lineages and traditions and skills and training. We, then there's also some things I think we just really need to chart a new course. And one of those pieces we've talked about is like having the organizer not exist just to reproduce their own specialization and produce other organizers per se, but to be you know increasing uh, protagonism and class consciousness among the community as a whole, the working class as a whole. I feel like bringing ideology back into it seems like just such a critical piece of all of this. And also, I think maybe leaning against the self-effacing posture of the organizer seems like it might be also related. Because if the organizer gives themselves permission to be ideological, then they also have a responsibility to be less self-effacing. Because it's not just about like uh, you doing whatever you want to do as a community leader, fighting over the stoplight or the thing that's the most immediate or the most winnable. If we do have ideology, it's about like charting a course that is not going to lead to a dead end and you know uh maybe posing the question directly to people like do you want to fight for something tangible that we can fight and win in the next two years or do you want to fight for something a little bit farther off that's more about winning the war of ideas over the next five years like these are tough choices because there's shit that you need to win now that would help your life but on the other hand we've learned some shit and that's reflected in our ideology so those are some of the things that come to mind for me like and i i i feel like the 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 ideological organizer kind of looks in my mental image a lot more like the sort of 
radical agitator of the old sort of like communist party tradition maybe a hundred years ago or you know across across america or the old socialist party at its height where it's like you're organizing you're campaigning you're building coalitions you're developing leaders but it's just like highly ideological on its face and you're working to make that kind of like common sense and popular and then connect it to the tangible those are just a few of my thoughts that come to mind but um as a as a closing why don't we just hear from each of you um, once more on like some of the directions that organizers ought to be setting out in in order to you know m- make this a, a a more you know i think the more radical the more truly radical practice that that we that we want to be a part of um let's just start with jason we'll give Vera the last word yeah i mean i think the things that come off the top is um I mean, all of us as, you know, if we're professional organizers, but then just anyone in this milieu, milieu of work, um, being part of some kind of party organization or proto-party organization, you know, here I'm thinking of like either a WFP affiliate or or a DSA counterpart. I think that is, or, or, or a democratic union, you know, of some sort um, where, so, you know, where, where your day-to-day, a lot of decisions are being made. Um, especially larger strategic ones are being made through, through a democratic process and you're just a member of the thing and you're trying to figure it out and that type of organizing. Um, so, and to me, that kind of organizing decenters the community as the thing or the grassroots as the thing and also decenters like the social movement as like this, this um, and I think it's just, it leads to different opportunities and different understandings of, of what we need to do as organizers. I think we need more cadre type of organizations, formations, whatever you want to call it, right? Like to me, momentum, that basically became a de facto, that would do the work of what a cadre used to do in in the Communist Party, right? In ID, IWW, what Left Roots has done, same thing. You know, I, I feel like there's a reason why folks who are attached to either something like a Left Roots or momentum, like their organizations are able to survive and able to survive conflict um, or just differences in fundings and ups and downs different than other organizations that are just totally detached from any sort of um, like training house or organizing tradition or trying to figure out different organizing traditions. So I think those are the two biggest just interventions that I think we, we, we can do. And then I think the last one is, is, yeah, we and Dissent just had an article on this. I mean, I think we have to rethink what we mean by organizing money, you know, right? You know, I think nowadays it's still either in the, the kind of re, like Alinsky reduction of you're just organizing money just to build this organization thing, or it's organizing money as like this, like, you know, the class version of white fragility of like where, you know, you just tell rich people, give us this money because we deserve it and it's redistribution, which it's it's just you know philanthropy dollars are never redistributive i mean it's it, it being a philanthropy is the redistribution part which is the money just going back to them to do what they want with it instead of being on de- democratic control so i think m- moving it from there and putting it much more in the realm of how does this build political you know strategy and organizing strategy um i don't have all the answers on it but i but but i think people like Alinsky and and Delgado were right. Like, you know, the people who kind of built out this thing before us in terms of how philanthropy was structured um, around organizing specifically, I think they were onto something about these are actually really important things around preconditions around money, not in terms of how many numbers you have, but like trainings, development, all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and then just the, the, the last little piece is the, the, the importance of um, membership dues and individual uh, donor networks is building up the organization. And not as this thing that is going to get majority of your money in or whatever, but just in terms of like folks then seeing themselves as part of the organization and be, and, and not dues like, you know, the 1% dues that, you know, that DSAs do it. I mean, three to 5% dues, like, I mean, like Acorn used to do and, you know, like labor does. Right. Um, and, you know, across and like, just kind of letting go of this like kind of liberal paternalism of like um, poor people, working class people can't pay dues. They, they, they pay dues all the time. They pay 10% to their church. Like, I mean, <laughs> They can and will and want to, right? If it's for the right thing, and 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 that builds like people power and working class people power in a very different way, and build and I think structures the relationships and organizations in, in very different ways. Um, and then the, the 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 other point though was then um, the, you know the organizers we're, we're just workers that like your, your organization cannot be your political home that you have to find a political home outside of the place that you work, and you also you need to unionize your place, right? Like if, if you want to hold these things accountable around management, around how the organizations run, how it's funded, folks need to unionize their place. You know, I mean, I think there's a place for deprofessionalizing, but I think there's a place for professionalizing along the ways that, that labor is described of how you should professionalize a place. Um, and I think that's super important if we want to kind of see our way out of like this, like the last that we're in. Go ahead, Vera. Um, yeah, I, well, I really agree with you, Will, on the ideology piece. And, um, I think that's, yeah, one, one of the big flaws of Alinsky, um, and the Alinsky tradition. And I think, I think there's, for me, there's a relationship between like being accountable doesn't mean that you're following whatever the interests of your members are. Um, but that it's a, there's a, a back and forth relationship. Uh, so you are articulating the most radical pieces and also shaping and forming as you represent. And, and I think it's, it's right that that role is not a, it's not, you're not doing it in a, you know, you can't totally efface yourself. You actually have to be, be honest about that um, and ensure that there are mechanisms of accountability to make sure that you're doing a good job leading and articulating. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think the other thing about Alinsky is that Alinsky was, uh, the, the model of organizing was broad-based organizing, meaning you're, and, and that I think is the, the profound liberalism is like, if we just represent everybody together uh, as opposed to understanding that there are differences um, and that some bases and constituencies by virtue of their position in the world are going to have a more transformative critique <laughs> um, of, of what's wrong with the world. More about the world will have to change uh, if you're organizing people who are uh, experiencing different forms of oppression. Um, <clears throat> and uh, And so I think yeah, I mean, we need to build a uh, working class organization um, uh, and particularly black and, uh, and brown immigrant working class organization, I think, uh, in this country and, um, and, and need organizational vehicles that can represent those interests in particular. And yeah, I guess the other thing is I think um, we can try to build you know, I th there's like the money interests, there's the organizational interests, and then there's our 
personal individual career interests. And I think all three of those uh, pose challenges uh, to doing the kind of work we need to do. Um, you know, I already talked about, I think you can try to align your organizational interests such that they're more in line with the kind of work you're trying to do. Like for instance, making sure that you depend on member dues is a good way to try to get, try to line up your organizational interests with the, your broader political interests. Um, but I think the other thing is like to be aware and not get confused about when something is an organizational interest uh, and when it's uh, your like actual <laughs> genuine political interest to as much as possible yeah. talk about it and sit with the tension because it's a real one. Um, the career thing, man, I don't know. I think careers, it, I think it's bad. It's, I don't think it's good ideology. I don't think it's good for the brain. And I think it uh, <laughs> shapes us all in different ways. And I think one of the things that I, I heard Mike Davis once talking about what it was like to organize in the seventies and was kind of like, you could just, kind of get away with not worrying about career too much because you could get a good paying union job pretty much. You could be guaranteed that you could get that. And I think we are just living in a different time in which things are more, they certainly feel more precarious. Um, and so making the kinds of sacrifices uh, that would be required to be able to do political work on a volunteer basis to carve out as much possible time for yourself as necessary um, I think all of that, uh, if we're living in a society in which there is more precarity as opposed to less, I think it's harder to do those things. And I don't really have a solution for that, but I think it's uh, like how to sustain your life in organizing, um, and which I think in some ways means you're like trying to carve out some space for yourself outside of the market. Um, I think doing that is hard when market pressures are and professionalizing pressures are getting bigger and bigger and bigger in our lives and in the world. Um, and, you know, I think that's the reason it like, just it, people have, you know, when I go like visit my family, I spent some time in Chile and it's like, people just have so much freaking time. Uh, and so that gives people a lot more freedom. Um, and I think that's, it, it's harder in the U S. Um, and you know, uh, that's not to say that's not to erase the ways in which like communal networks and, you know, people spend time, people go to church, people put a lot of time. Yeah. But well, let's, uh, let's stop there. Um, uh, this has been really rich, really interesting, a lot to follow up on Vera and Jason. I appreciate you both. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Good to see you both. <laughs> This podcast is written and hosted by me, William Lawrence. Our producer is Josh Elstro, and it is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon subscriber of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com slash convergencemag. You can find a direct link in the show notes. This has been the Hegemonicon. Let's talk again soon.